Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Zach Hilditch is an Australian writer and director primarily known for the Netflix hits Rattlesnake and 1922, based on the Stephen King novella. Zach's earlier films include Transmission and These Final Hours. Zach is a very exciting director and has a really inspiring origin story, along with some really great advice for pitching producers. I took a lot of notes from this conversation and hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Without further ado, here is Zach Hilditch. Zach Hilditch, coming to us live from Perth, Australia. How do you do? I do well. Thanks for having me, Nick. Of course. It's my pleasure. Uh, become a really big fan. And I think your body of work is really interesting because they're all, all the movies are very distinctly different, but you can kind of tell that your hand is behind all of them. I mean, they all take place in, in very different scenarios and have different tones, but you do have a directorial signature, I think. I'm wondering, was there any th- conscious effort to kind of have that directorial signature? Because some directors have it naturally. Some of them do it intentionally. Um, in some cases, it's just subconscious and, and accidental. So was having a kind of signature important to you as a director? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it all happens through um, osmosis. Um, it all happens um, sometimes on purpose. But um, yeah, I mean, when it comes to my first um, my first fully financed um, Australian film, These Final Hours, I mean, that was just my attempt to make something like... Um, Nicholas uh, Winding reference Pusher splashed together with 28 Days Later. Nice. And um, that's sort of my take on films that have always inspired me. Um, that was me sort of um, my attempt to make something uh, as inspirational as those films were, were, were for me as a filmmaker. And, um, you know, you can't help but have some of that stylistic sensibility from things like that um, seep in. And then you've also got to try to make it your own. Um, yeah. But obviously um, budget will also dictate like, hey, you've only got a certain amount of money to pull off the end of the world. So it better be a kitchen sink drama style of end of the world, right. which uh, it also was, which involved, you know, lots of cool handheld cinematography and a rough and ready approach as, as, as opposed to like a very static sort of languid sort of um a uh, bit of flair. It, it needed to be a, as nuts as we could make it, as as, as frantic as we could make it. 
the last day on earth um so that sort of also dictated like how we would shoot the film yeah and i'm sure you were operating on a, on a relatively low budget but very high concept what was that like having to do something that had a scope that was that big i mean end of the world it doesn't get much bigger but on a considerably lower budget yeah, I mean, when, when I say it was my first finance movie, I'd actually made three um, zero-budget backyard features in the lead-up to it. Oh, um, okay. Ever since, ever since film school um, and you get out into the big bad world and you try to figure everything out. So I just started making a bunch of stuff with friends, you know, with basically no resources. At the same time, making, uh, you know, funded shorts, unfunded shorts. I just did as much as I possibly could. And in 2012, when I found myself on set of these final hours, you know, I'd already done the hard yards with like three features where I got to test the waters. Like the very first one we made called The Actress, we shot it for $700 and it got into slam dance. Whoa. And I mean, I'd never been to America before. So fuck, it just opened up my whole world. And it just... Talk about putting fuel to the flames of wanting to be a filmmaker, like making a movie with nothing to lose, like based on the the dogma, um, you know, style of filmmaking, um, and then getting all the way over to slam dance with it. It was like just it was it was insane, and um, you know, th that that really inspired me to keep going. And I I made two more after that, uh, um, and then and then I you know had sort of done that trilogy of like zero budgetness. Right. And it was time to take that next step up as a third year old. And um, luckily, you know, um, soft government money, like uh, there was a lot more of it a decade ago, but um, I was very lucky. The planets aligned, but I also had the right project at the right time called These Final Hours, which, mm -hmm. um, which was chosen to be made into a movie with, you know, everyone getting paid, you know, just enough money to pull it off with a with a sales agent, with a distributor, like like all of these things. And then, you know, that one there gets into Khan Director's Fortnite. So then you're pinching yourself all over again. You look back a decade ago and you're like, fuck, I remember making the actress and going to Slam Dance. And then just thanking your lucky stars that, oh my God, all this work now on this first funded one, this first finance one, where I got to make a, a proper movie for realsies. Right. Um, into Khan. And then you're over there and just experiencing a whole other side of cinema again. And, um, these little milestones definitely inspire you to keep going because yeah, sure. It's fucking hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's sure hard. Yeah. Well, how formidable were those first few backyard features? I mean, it sounds like off the gate, you had some initial success, which clearly kept you going and doing like doing the, the subsequent two movies after that. But what was the making of those movies? Like, I mean, was it you and a bunch of friends just coming together or making it happen, pulling together, whatever finance you, you had access to? Yeah, like coming towards the end of um, wrapping up a film degree, a three-year film degree at Curtin University, me and my mate Anthony Webb and our other friend Steve McCall, who was an actor and a writer, and it was a real collective, you know, it was like one of those real collectives where just just, just, just you and a few of your mates mm -hmm. um, just all, all batting down the hatches and going, look, this summer, like let's just spend the next three months between everyone's work schedules and whatever. Let's just, let's just shoot piece by piece this movie about four housemates in a house um which one of the actresses from the from the movie owned and um you know that that'll be our set and literally talk about a shooting schedule it was just like who isn't working their <laughs> shit kicker job tomorrow okay well then we're going to do scenes a b and c then like it was it was just such a um organic like thing but we did have a script and um yeah it, it took a while to get done because obviously no one's getting paid and and whatnot um and then the editing was its own thing but we finally had a movie that you know, it wasn't even properly graded. We didn't really know what a grade was back then. Um, and it got into Slam Dance. 
because um, they take punts on, you know, some interesting lo-fi cinema that has something to say and is sort of as an interesting voice. And and that was just inspired by, as I said, like the whole dogma movement and um, black comedies. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically it's about a, a femme fatale who takes the spare room at this house after one of the housemates leaves and she goes about ruining the lives of everyone who lives in their house, like a force of nature. And it was just about, um, yeah, people people's people's jealousy people's people's emotions getting in the way of their friendship and um yeah it was just a just a real um it was it was just a real learning curve like again you've got nothing to lose it's like what would it be like to make a feature film and we found out and yeah very rarely do those things then you know get into slam dance and have you traveled to america for the first time in your right. life so like it, I, I still pinch myself at like, um, just, but I was just so obsessed with like making as much as humanly possible that um, uh, it just made sense that okay, over the summer let's just borrow a bunch of gear from uh, from the uni and let's just let's just get shooting and um, and then um, and then I did that again with uh, now investing a tiny a bit of money um, into in into the second one which was called Plum Roll using a lot of the same collective that did a. Um, a few festivals um and then uh, the third one was called the toll which again still used the same sort of collective and um that did the festival circuit as well um but then yeah that, that as i said that was kind of the end of the trilogy and just sort of helping me find my voice as a feature filmmaker as well um there were many projects that i thought would be my first funded one before these final hours but you know you come this close and then they fall over or it's not really the right project at the right time yeah there was something about the last day on earth that was just um you know just so interesting for everyone who thought about it it was so universal that um lightning really struck when i had that idea And um, it was really brought on by my own fear of mortality and, um, you know, um, moving from your 20s into your 30s and realizing that you've, you know, you've, you've, you you can't just be getting pissed with your mates all the time. And um, those things feeding into what would you do if you were that kind of character on the last day on earth um, uh, just really resonated for people. And it was a really fun script to write. And um, it was really nurtured by Screen West and Screen Australia, the two governing bodies over here. Mm-hmm. Um and um, yeah, we we managed to coddle together a two point four million dollar Australian um, budget after everything was said and done to 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 pull it off, and wow. we just barely pulled off uh, the things we needed to pull off in that movie. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, it uh, definitely again opened up doors to me as a filmmaker to now go on to the next phase of my life, and that was making films over in the in the states. Nice. Now, yeah, the Australian Film Fund sounds like it offers amazing opportunities for for Aussie oh, filmmakers. It, it it did. It's been slashed and slashed and slashed. Oh, really? Talk about a slasher horror film. Um, yeah, like there was a lot of. <laughs> it was like the. It's almost like I look back as like the pre-war days where it was like the Roaring Twenties. Yeah. <laughs> like, like partying, and there were so many workshops that were that were funded, and you could get you know, script development, just like pretty straightforward and like just, there were, there was a lot of incentives that has been whittled, whittled down. Um, oh, to a, like every year it's gotten worse and worse and it's only become even harder now to get these kind of films up. But look, they are still doing films, you know? So, um, yeah, it isn't lost, but um, that's a shame like, though. Cause I love Australian cinema. It's got such attitude to it in a lot of ways. There's a real Western sensibility. There's a grit, but also a lot of heart. Um, I was just saw one that was really good with, I totally forgot the name of it. It's Robert Pattinson and Guy Pierce. Oh, the um, Rover. Yes. Yeah. That was excellent. That was excellent. I think, yeah, 
shot in Australia. I believe it was an Australian director. I don't know if the film oh, fund was behind oh, it. Yeah. Yeah, David Michaud, who did Animal Kingdom. <coughs> um, yeah, that was in um that was in Cannes the year we were in Cannes. I got to go to the world premiere of the rover in Matux. Oh nice. There on the on the very front far wing in the most uncomfortable seat, uncomfortable <laughs> suit of my life. But yeah, it was a you could hear a pin drop in that um palais uh, as the as the rover played out. Oh, that's awesome. Really, really cool. Um, so after these final hours, what was the transition like to getting to do a Stephen King story, 1922, for Netflix? How did how did that come about? So, yeah, so after these final hours, it opened up doors. I then have an agent and a manager, and I'm going over doing the water bottle tour, as they call it. Oh, yeah. You go over for two-week two week stints where you're just doing three to four meetings a day. You're, you're, you're pitching your wares producers are pitching you their wares and you know they all they all lead to nothing and after a couple of years of these you go fuck why do i keep doing those trips which are fun but yeah. you know what if i do a grid none of these things that and you never have a bad meeting you never have you go into that meeting you come out and you're like oh my god i think i'm making my first fucking studio feature or oh my god i think i'm i think i might have sold my idea about this they all just peter out and become nothing but then there's that one in 100 um, where you have a meeting with the producer um, and you have another meeting with that producer the next time. And then ultimately you realize, oh, that thing that did land on their desk that I wrote, um, they want to do it. And that was a producer named Ross Dinnerstein mm -hmm. uh, from Campfire. I, um, to cut a long story short, there were many um, projects I was developing after these final hours and they all died in the ass. Um, but I read 1922 from Stephen King's novella, Full Dark, No Stars, when I was waiting to hear about financing for these final hours. Mm -hmm. And I, it sort of took my mind off the stress of that decision. And I remember putting it down and going, fuck, Frank Darabont is going to have a field day with this. Like, yeah. this is the most Darabont of your Darabont scripts. I mean, you know, I could just see the, the color palette. I could see it all. And it was such a cinematic story that King wrote. Like, it was already a movie. It was like, fuck, this is so good. Anyway, never in a million years that I think I'd be in the King game or allowed to be given the keys to in that the kingdom property in the kingdom. And um, anyway, so the, all these things come fall, fall, fall by the wayside. And then my mind kept going back to that story and almost out of frustration, I was sort of like, I, I inquired like, hey, whatever happened to that story in 1922? And everyone was like, what the fuck's that in 1922? What are you talking about? So I basically wrote King a love letter saying, hey, this is my name and um, I'd really love to do this. And he gave me like six months to write it and then six months to then set it up as a real movie. And wow. so I had a year. It was like a ticking clock. So I was off to the races on spec, just adapt. I'd never done an adaptation before either. So talk about uh, a fun one to do as your first one because oh, it was yeah. already in such good shape that it was a good you know, one for me to sort of test that out. And I whittled it down into the script that it was, and then no one wanted to touch it. Like, like this is before the King Naissance of oh, 2017. Okay. Which 1922 came out in with seven other things. <laughs> like, yeah. like that hadn't happened yet. This is 2014 or 15. So no one wanted to touch it. And it's period, and it's about a guy who brutally murders his wife, and then we're supposed to kind of empathize and follow him. Um, so no one wanted to touch this thing. And then I was like, well, fuck, like, king likes it and like i can't believe that again this another thing's gonna fall by the wayside and i just thought once i was given ip like this it'll be a slam dunk anyway no one owes you anything in this world and that was pretty clear but then it landed on ross's desk and he read it and he said i love it and i'm i've got this golden run right now with low budget um horror films at netflix and i think this is this could be great 
and they're just sort of still figuring out what they're doing and i'll take it to ian brick there and we should do this so i'm going to fly you out and we'll we'll go and pitch it to ian and i was like great i get on a plane and come over for another water bottle tour but the big reason for that trip was to to go and meet ian at the old netflix building which was just you know <laughs> like um just in west hollywood and just like in this weird building that didn't even have a sign on the door and um it was the most casual coffee you could ever have like like me ross and ian just sitting there and i'm just talking about how i'd make the movie and i've got a mood board and i'm just showing him that and you know it was like the most chill fucking chat ever and then literally the next day ross calls and says yep they're in so um yeah, they're giving us this amount of money so we're off to the races and i was just like uh fucking, okay what so when it does happen it just happens right like that easily it, it can be that easy so that was that was kind of a shock after the the nose that thing was getting and yeah. then um and then you know thomas jane comes on board and then we're in vancouver and it's 2016 and it's winter and we're trying to pull off hot nebraska dust bowl in in those conditions with very little money but um fuck, you know like we pulled it off and um i was just obsessed with that story and um and i had a great producer who also really understood what this could be and um netflix were just so supportive uh king was so supportive it was just like the 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 best version uh, of making a film that you could find yourself in, you know? Wow. Um, like, like, like everyone just really dug it and, um, and, and, and the crew were really into it. And the idea of making a King thing, you know, you're in, you're in Vancouver and you're in someone's house and you're doing a recce and all you got to say is like, Oh, it's a Stephen King film. People just go, Oh, it's like, you don't even need to it. Like that's the great thing about a King story is you just go, oh, it's a King thing, and they're like, gotcha. <laughs> you don't need to go. Oh, so there's this guy, right? And he's a he's a <laughs> farmer, and like this is what happens, right? You just go, it's a King. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like my house. Use all my houses. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah, the movie has such a great film noir vibe to it, like Charles Lawton kind of Night of the Hunter sort of a vibe to it, while still being really you know modern. What were some of the the um, the inspirations or you know intentional choices in terms of tone? Because it it felt like an old movie while still feeling feeling really modern and uh, and very very noirish, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, um, lots of uh, depression era um, uh, photography. Dorothy Lang, she was the uh, famous um, dust bowl photographer who okay. took all those amazing American photos. Like my office in Vancouver was just, uh, the walls were just covered in amazing photography of hers that I'd printed out. And anyone who'd come in for a meeting, be it you were the costume designer, you were one of the um, bit uh, day players, whatever you were, you'd always just look around and see before we'd even shot anything, just the kind of movie we were all trying to make. And it was that sweaty, yeah. depression era, dust bowl vibe, dirt. People didn't look like movie stars. They just looked like real people who were going through some shit. Um, that was the the feeling, the earthly colors, you know, the browns and the grays and the everything was just really hard. And that was the movie um, spliced with a gothic horror tale mm -hmm. about the telltale, no, King King's telltale heart, basically. Um, uh, that that uh, that all in one just sort of was such an evocative thing for everyone to get their heads around, and it was just really exciting. And um, and yeah, that was the one of the big inspirations. That's awesome. Yeah, and I to to go back to how the movie came about. I feel like those water bottle tours, as exhausting as they may be and seemingly fruitless, I feel like you just have, you, the more you do them, the more you expose yourself to the chance that that needle in a haystack is going to prick you in the ass, for lack of a better term. You know, 
it, it, it's it's a part of the game and you know I, the one a bit of advice i'd tell you like if you're not a writer director maybe team up with a writer because like going into those meetings and expecting people to give you the magic the magic cure to your next project it doesn't it very rarely happens if you're the one going in and pitching your thing yeah that's all be written or you're going to write or whatever but you're the one that's got to go in with the ideas because ain't no one going to give you their fucking you know brilliant idea as you know you johnny jo johnny australia just walking in off the street you know <laughs> straight off the plane like it's like who are you like what have you what have you really done like um the more you can go in with your own cool ideas and cool scripts and just really you know and, and the more of that you can put forward then they're maybe more open to giving you their good idea or the thing that they've been looking for someone that might hmm. um have their sensibility that oh we might have just found it because we don't really want the thing that you're telling us about but it is similar to this kind of vibe so maybe we'll send you this that's how these things happen but to going with with you know your gun unloaded you, you, yeah. you've got to go you've got to go in all guns are blazing i mean you're only in there for sometimes 15 minutes sometimes an hour yeah. but you know, I've, I've had some that are less than five minutes and you're just like, what was the fucking point of that? <laughs> what just happened there? Santa Monica for this. <laughs> <laughs> but look, it's part of the experience. It's part of the game. Like, like you're like, fuck, I'm here, you know? Like, I'm actually here. i got to make... Um, I, I, I really got to just um, embrace every, every moment of this because it's only a two-week water bottle tour. Then I'll be back in Perth, like, just yeah. trying to write scripts and... You know now now having zooms like when i was first doing it no one even knew what a zoom was and <laughs> prayers for skype whatever happened to skype <laughs> yeah like, right skype. poor skype is over <laughs> yeah i feel like that's a huge piece of advice you got to go into those meetings armed because if even if they're not going to green light your project they need to know your sensibility because you know they can they can find something else um, I feel like what happens to a lot of people is even if they start to have moderate success, they get kind of stuck when they enter the system, things either get into production hell or they have those meetings where, like you said, everybody's optimistic. Everybody says yes. And I read in a book that nobody in Hollywood will ever say no to you because they don't ever want to reject you because if you do get famous, they want you to remember them in a favorable light. So like nobody will ever say no to you. It's just like a industry of hypotheticals, which drives people not from California, fucking crazy um, but yeah any keys for just kind of getting unstuck to the point where like you're you're somewhere and you want it you're, you're kind of flirting with getting to that next level but people aren't returning the phone calls the scripts are not getting accepted i mean were there any either key allies or key strategies for for being able to essentially break through that ceiling because i think a lot of filmmakers find themselves there yeah, I think it's weight of numbers. You know, if you've got one project and you've had it for five years and it's, and you just can't get it over the line, it's like, you can't just have one project, you know? Yeah. Like even right now, like looking at the whiteboard, I've got like 10 things, you know? It's like, one's a pitch, one's a spec I wrote, one's yeah. an adaptation I'm doing, one's a series, one's this, one's that, one's another spec that I wrote that I've been trying to get up. It's like the more fingers in pies you have, mm. the weight of numbers, hopefully one of those things will go. I mean, I've, I've never had the problem of like, oh no, two of my things are going at once. Which one am I going to choose? <laughs> That's never happened to me in my life. Even yeah. in your mind, when things are looking good and you're thinking, oh no, I'm going to have to disappoint someone because both these things are looking good. And then cut to neither of them ever happen. Comedy know? cut, yeah. It, it's like, but again, that one hopefully will happen. And um, I mean, uh, you know, after 1922, um, 
I was then with the same producer, Ross Dennerstein, and he was doing the John Grisham documentary, The Innocent Man. And because he had a nice in with Grisham now, he was like, hey, you've done your king. How about Grisham? Time for a comeback, baby. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's been ages since. Uh, I think it was 15, 16 or 17 years now since a Grisham um, feature. Oh, wow. And he sent me literally the um, the little the little blurbs of every available Grisham title, and I just went through them all. And he said, "Let me know if there's any of these that float your boat." And there was one called "The Confession," and I was like, "Oh, this doesn't sound like a courtroom drama because courtroom dramas aren't really yeah. my thing." Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't do one, but um, there was one that was about um, a priest and a serial killer on a road trip, uh, and that was just the beginning of it. And I was like, "What the fuck is this? The Confession?" Smashed through that was like, there is absolutely something here. Um, so I, I read the confession, fell in love with it, really thought there was potential here for a great movie, stripped a lot of things out of it and made a, you know, got, got it into a good two hour script. And um, again, this goes back to the thing that no one owes you anything. Netflix said no, you know, and um, we thought this was going to be an absolute slam dunk given, you know, how we had, um, you know, over-delivered 1922 to them. Mm-hmm. And um, it just turned out just for whatever reason, it just wasn't the right thing at the right time. And, you know, we were really proud of the script and really dug the writing. And um, we thought what, what we had done with Grisham's book, like, was the best payoff to, like, make it a bit of cinema. And um, it was just a no. And then, you know, it just goes to show, like, when these streamers say no, it just gets really hard because you try to then set that thing up the old-fashioned way. And it is just almost near impossible these days. It is very, very tricky. Mm. And one just died in the ass, you know. And, you know... That, that, that I thought that I absolutely, if I was a betting man, was like, that's going to be my follow up to 1922. That doesn't happen. But then you've got a script that you've just very quickly written as one of your 10 to 20 projects called Rattlesnake. And they mm-hmm. say yes to that almost immediately. And you're like, all right, this, this weird little ticking clock thriller set in Talia, Texas, about a mum and a daughter and a rattlesnake. It's like, okay. Who am I to say no to making a movie? Yeah. Uh, so then you find yourself in New Mexico making that as your follow up to 1922. But you just the more thing the more fingers in pies you can have, the better. But you also just never know. You never know what is going to be greenlit, what is going to take, and what isn't. Yeah. And um, you've just got to be, you've just got to have your go bag and be ready to go on a on a minute's notice because like of those ten things, the one that you never thought even had the traction, all of a sudden, the right person's read it. And this financier or this streamer are looking for that exact kind of thing right now, and it's a yes, or they've got a, or the producer and them have a relation. You're just so far removed from it, especially all the way here in Perth, where you don't know day to day this what even is being said behind closed doors. Um, you just wait for that phone to ring, and it's like, please be good news. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds like there's no logic to it either, or not, and, it's, and not even, and, or not logic that unless you're really in the system you can you can actually find any any logic to in other words like you never know why somebody's going to pass on something or yeah. why they would pick it up you know and trends have very little to do with these things even people who are entrenched in the la system over there don't have a fucking clue when they get the no like the, the producers you're dealing with sometimes are so experienced and then they can't even tell you why it was a no like when everything was looking good you know yeah. it's just fickle um anything goes by you know was the wind blowing this way that way the other <laughs> it's a like fickle that. beast you know it, it, it's, yeah it, it can drive you insane it can drive you insane but um you know if, if, if you love telling stories enough you'll you'll stick with it and just beg borrow and steal to get that next thing up yeah and uh it's a grind man it's just uh 
it's a it's it's always a grind. You've just got to. It, it's just always a bar fight. <laughs> You've just got to <laughs> take all those punches to the face, all the nose, and then ultimately it makes that one yes is even more sweeter because um because you you just you know you just took so many blows. Yeah, yeah. But I think having always being armed with multiple projects and multiple things. Okay, this didn't work. Let's jump back on that. I mean, it, that is. It sounds like it's entirely the name of the game. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I had a series uh, right in the heat of COVID. I mean, I was living in LA last year, like when everything was unfolding, the riots, COVID and um, and Zoom became a thing. So Zoom's now your life, even though you're in LA and the reason you're doing a one year rental over there is because you actually are able to do all the schmoozing and the meetings now all the time. And then the irony is, well, now it's just a Zoom, yet I'm in the city. Shit. I'm all the way to the city, you know, we've packed up our life and now here, here we are. And there was a series, and um, that series could not have been looking any sweeter. And um, it would have been my first stab at TV. And then, then that was a no. And you yeah. just look back, and you know, what was it? Was it because we were doing it over Zoom? Is You just don't know. But again, the, it couldn't have gone any better, those pitches. Um, in the in the virtual room for it ultimately to be a no. So I, I just come, I've come to realize like you, even when it seems like a yes, it's probably a no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Guillermo del Toro said the natural state of a movie is for it not to be made. So <laughs> constantly fighting the weight of that. Um, I enjoy the hell out of Rattlesnake. How, where did that concept come from? Because I, I thought it was a really fascinating concept. It was very catchy. And I, I mean, definitely see sequel potential. But <laughs> where did the concept come from? Oh, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, I, um, I guess it's my love of Twilight Zone episodes, the original, um, the original black and white series. Like so many eps, I just find hold up even to this day. And I always had the Twilight Zone concept of that scenario of a, um, you know, a mother who would do anything to save her child and it involves taking someone else's soul. Yeah. Um, then figuring out, okay, but where would that be? And just the snowball effect of like, well, I want to tell something in the desert. And then that means maybe it involves a rattlesnake. And then we've got this fastness and that nice cinematic uh, uh, sensibility of big blue skies and endless um, nothingness. Um, so th that was sort of visually as a filmmaker where it all came from. But um, you know, we were about to have our first child um, as well. And oh. um, I'd always had the concept in my head, but I didn't actually know what to do with it or how to write it. And literally a couple of months before our son was born, I was at the gym one day and just the idea of how to do it, mm. um, uh, that it's all set over a day and it's a ticking, more of a ticking clock thing. I was just like, oh, I think that's how I can actually frame this whole thing. Went home, just started writing it. And it, I mean, this, this thing happened so this is the opposite of everything I just said. <laughs> this thing happened so quickly, like so quickly. And I'm still dealing with like the confession not getting up. So I'm kind of bummed about that. Um, and I instantly give this to Ross because I'm like, well, look, before I give it to any producer, I'm going to give it to Ross. He loved it. We did the classic Netflix thing. Like first port of call is let's see what Netflix think. And they said, yes, like so quickly. Oh. And, um, and then, the, and that was it, you know, like, um, it was just so quick. Like I'm talking like a matter of months between writing it to then getting a greenlit and then yep. knowing that we'd be able to make this in New Mexico. It was, it was insane. Wow. Um, and that one, that one just sort of, uh, was one of those ones that's just built on momentum. Like, you know, it's just built on like, okay, let's just go, let's just go and just go and make a movie. Almost felt like, you know, being back, uh, back at film school or something, you know, it was just like, okay, this is happening very quickly and let, let's, let's just do another movie. Um, so cool. uh, 
yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but, but Netflix, um, Netflix was supportive of that one. They gave us a little bit more money than we had on 1922 to pull it off. And, you know, we were in some really remote locations there in New Mexico. And um, man, I we didn't even touch the sides. Like the amount of amazing places we didn't even get to put a camera on because you've only got 25 days mm. was just such a pain. Like from those canyons to just those deserts. Oh, there was this, I, I just want to go back and make more stuff there because yeah. like, all these amazing locations that we didn't even have a scene for, you know, it's like, yeah. I want to do something there, but you know, you can't and you're just limited to, to your days. But, um, but yeah, that was, I mean, the, the Santa Fe crew and the, and the Vancouver crew for 1922, just so amazing. Like, like just so professional and just such lovely people. Yeah. Some of those landscapes looks fantastic. I love desert photography. It looks really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Carmen Ajogo, like she, um, yeah, I don't know if she'd ever been like the, the fully fledged lead in a, in her own thing before, mm -hmm. apart from the girlfriend experience. Um, and uh, yeah, she, she was just an absolute delight to work with, like just such a, such a cool chick. And um, yeah, I'd love to work with her again. Cool. For sure. Yeah, when Krasinski, when Krasinski was approaching A Quiet Place, the whole concept came behind, okay, what am I afraid of more than anything? And it's the idea of your child being in harm's way. And that was the, apparently that was like the complete and total origin of, of Quiet Place. There's reverse engineering, like w the fear of losing a child or your child being harmed in some way. You being a new dad and that movie being essentially about protecting the life of your child, you must have channeled a lot of that into the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I look back at all three of those movies and it's like, you know, these final hours, 1922, and Rounds, like, it's all uh, parent-child. Yeah. They're actually parent-child movies. And that wasn't even a... That wasn't even a deliberate thing. It was this very much a subconscious thing. Um, you know, 1922 by default, because I didn't come up with the original story. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I find that one to be such a, a tragic love story between a father and son. Like, like he only does what he does, not because he's a monster, but yeah. because he absolutely loves his son. And if he can't hand this land and this house and everything he's worked towards over to his son when he dies, then what is the point of life? And it's an existential crisis that he faces and he goes about solving this problem in the most fucked up way. <laughs> but in his mind, in his mind, it's because of the love of his son. Right. And then when the son betrays him and says, well, I'm fucking out of here because you should never have enlisted me to help you in this demented plan of yours, his whole world falls apart. And um, yeah, it, the whole thing is just a tragedy. And, um, and, uh, but yeah, I also think it's a really bittersweet love story because he simply does it because of a, uh, you know, his manhood's threatened and only in a way because it directly correlates into his son, you know, and yeah. his son is a part of him and that yin and yang of the universe. Um, and then these final hours, that's like, you know, uh, me not even being close to children yet, but like kind of being, you know, that kind of guy who's mm -hmm. just like going through the merchants and like going to parties and this, that and the other. And then knowing that responsibility is just around the corner. And um, when he finds this little girl and can, can do so much more on the last day than just get fucked up. Like um, it, it's about that moment where we, um, you know, we need, we need to stand up and and do the important things and no, no longer just get fucked up on the weekends. Right. Where right. Think, like you've already got the child and um, and now it's sick and the th and you and how you would bend heaven and earth to keep that child safe and protect that child, which 
I now have two, so um, <clears throat> I know all too well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's so much. It, 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 the, the parental fear works so well for horror movies. I hate to say it, but it's absolutely true. I mean, look at Quiet Place 1 and 2. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still haven't checked out the second one. Oh, um, it's good. God, go see it in a theater if you can. Yeah. If you're comfortable going to movie theaters now, it uh, it was my first movie back in theaters, and it was like, okay, this is this is the way to go. If you can see it on the biggest, baddest IMAX screen possible, it's very cinematic, and they were very smart to wait because it's uh, it's a great theatrical experience. The scope is yeah, a little exactly. bigger. Um, it's not a spoiler because they show it on the trailer, but you see what day one looks like, which was fucking awesome. It was so good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man, yeah. take it for no, sure. No, we've been very spoiled over here during all of this. Like, cinemas barely shut down in Perth. Oh, is that right? Australia. Like, it was just, it was just, let the good times roll. Yep, cinemas are open. Like, especially in WA, <laughs> in Western Australia. Like, um, yeah, we had one case and they shut the entire city down for five days until it's just everything's cool again. Wow. And, then, and that's just one case. So, yeah, it's it's almost like another planet over here, especially having lived in LA for that whole year and then just getting the fuck out of Dodge last July and now spending the last year back home. Just oh, wow. just just different. Are you um, thinking of going back to LA? Uh no. <laughs> I'll go wherever the work is. Yeah. Um if there's one thing Zoom has showed us, you can develop, you can write, you can pitch, you can have the meeting, you can do it all wherever the fuck you want now. Yeah. I wonder how long it would take the water bottle tours to become a normal thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, you know, we've got two kids now as well. So I think it's travel for us now is more like, is the thing greenlit? Where are we shooting? And that's right. where we're going. But, you know, it'd be good to go back to LA at some point. Um, once it's all normalized and you can do all the, the schmoozing and the, the parties. Yeah. Yeah. The world's yeah. <laughs> it's a weird time to be there now, though. So as a writer, are you always writing? Do you have a daily writing practice? Uh, it's just absolute chaos theory, especially with kids now. Um, you know, yeah. you've, got your day, you've got your days of daycare where you try to do as much writing as possible. You've got your days where you have no daycare. So you're just like, well, fuck that. <laughs> I'm going to try. Um, and uh, everything in between. Like it gets harder to write at night now because you've got two little ones. Like by right. nighttime, you so fucking uh, zapped so like morning and afternoons are like when you're going to get stuff done but for me it's just about deadlines it's like what's the current thing that i need to do and just putting all my attention into that and just you know over the course of a day you've either written five pages or you've written 10 pages or you've written one page or you've just done you've just chipped away at it um but uh but yeah, sometimes you'll have a spec that you're writing that is just sort of like coming very easily. So you you look back and it's almost like you're in a fugue state, you know, and you don't right. even know how many days that took or or what, what the rhyme or reason was. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a weird feeling. Sometimes like I don't even remember writing that scene, but the whole, the movie yeah. just kind of materializes. Like, huh? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, it's like it's like that ten thousand hours rule. You know, the more time you put into it, the muscle memory of being able to cock a scene, or, or the more important stuff is like the thinking, like before yeah. you sit in the lab, like like coming into it inspired, or like knowing what. Oh, actually, and then when you get into the meat of it, how that then can shift. But um, but yeah, like having a lot of walks with the kids and whatnot. That's a lot of time to oh, just okay, like. Yeah mull things over and like is that the best way um 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's a very uh, haphazard thing. Like, who the hell knows? It, it feels like magic sometimes, like a magic trick or something. But <laughs> I, I put a lot of hours into the process, so um, each thing's its own thing. Like, some things don't require a treatment. Some things do need to be sort of outlined first. Some things right. I'll just start writing. Uh, if it's an adaptation, you kind of can just go, oh, that's a cool scene in the book. I'll just write that as a scene and see where that goes and yeah it's all just a bit of um bit of a chaotic chaotic sort of thing yeah so it sounds like it just depends on the project whether you outline or whether you yeah it's, it's all contingent on the project. oh so, yeah 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 so were there any pivotal mentors for you that helped either boost your career or just gave you the right insight or advice to enable your your success or anybody who helped you navigate Hollywood? Was there anybody who, who was like a big part of, of your career thus far? I think uh, Ross Dinnerstein being the first producer um, I ever, first American producer I ever worked with, like he was definitely the sort of um, the chaperone who sort of helped me navigate like, okay, yeah. this is what happens when you actually do get one of these up, and this is how we're going to do things. Um, and we're very similar ages as well. Um, and we're really good friends. So um, it was all through, you know, um, making the film together that we became very close. Um, so that's great to know that there's someone that you would absolutely work with again and again and again. Um, and um, it is interesting, like, sort of comparing, like, how one producer over there works compared to another one that you're now in bed with and haven't really right. shot anything yet. I haven't gone down the full rabbit hole with yet. So he's always been a great one for advice. And my, my manager, Josh Kesselman at Throughline, um, he saw these final hours um, very early on and um, had also seen some shorts of mine and was very aggressive about bringing me on board. Wow. And uh, I sort of was just chatting to him for a year, just sort of like, oh, I don't really know about all, all this manager agent world. But he was very um, supportive, like for a year. And then after he finally saw the film, like he was like, let's go, I want to rep you. And I was like, well, no one else has been showing me this love and this, and this, like, um, you know, fixated, you know, I want a repuness. Right, so right. I was like, sure. So that was my first water bottle tour, getting on the plane. And it was all the meetings that he had set up. Like he took me into all the agencies and took me into some producers' offices. And, you know, I got all the water bottles together and um, did the two week tour. And then that was it. And then I got my first taste of it. So, and you know, he's still my manager and he's great. He's always a great sounding board. And, um, that's great. Yeah. Those, those are the two that, um, have been, <clears throat> have been really great. Yeah. It's so hard to find those kind of people. I mean, particularly in Hollywood, <laughs> there's people who are willing to champion you or willing to champion someone who, who are in it for the love of movies and see talent and want to actually fight for it instead of hiring, you know, whoever's popular at the time making safe movies that are you know safe for the sake of they're going to make their returns or whatever it's few and far between to find people who will actually fight for you in hollywood absolutely which is uh it sounds absolutely. like you get really lucky he's yeah finding finding a mensch like that is uh is worth its weight in gold for sure that's awesome yeah and to have a manager where you uh, the, the line is blurred between are we just actually friends like if you weren't even my manager like we're in, it's so much a part of my life with all yeah. of this that i just like you know the amount of you know time you spent hanging out just at his house and just just doing things together you're like it it's it, 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 it's a strange thing because uh, ultimately they are you know t taking a percent of you and you know all the business side of things but at the same time 
um, I guess that's a good job of a manager. Like if they're actually a really honorable, decent human being, yeah. like they're your friend no matter what. And and for that to know, for you to think of them more as a friend than a manager, like I, I guess that's the great magic trick. But also, oh, yeah. um, like I honestly believe like we'll always be in each other's lives. Not that I'm ever going to get rid of him. But yeah, um, of course. It's, it's, it's like we're actually really close friends. So um, that's just great to have someone um, who knows the system inside out and um, helps you just like make all those important decisions and it's always looking out for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful thing, man. So last question, were there any books or resources that were particularly helpful for you either as a director, writer, or that were for your career in general, any, any resources or books that, uh, that were, that were helpful? Um, I read basically all of them from save the cat onwards. Yeah. Um, and then, some point you just i mean it all melds together yeah you sort of end up in your own thing but you know the hero's journey and all these stories they're all kind of like they're all kind of there. And there's many courses you can do it but you can also just burn yourself out with knowing everything but then it's about putting that into practice and what i like doing is just like almost again going into that fugue state and just writing things and not focusing on am i saving the cat too early is this hero's journey supposed to happen on page seven what what's this turning point like just forget all that and just tell a story and what what keeps changing the story and oh how do the stakes keep getting higher oh now we're over here now we're over there just having like keeping writing fun you know yeah. and then you can always go back and massage things and um you know figure out where your character needs to save the cat if that's exactly what they need to do um but um but yeah, uh, it's it's. Um, I I can't really think of one book in particular that um, um, blew me away. One one very important workshop that me and the producer of these final hours, Liz Carney, did um, through Screen Australia um, was I had my vomit draft of these final hours submitted to this thing called Springboard, and through Springboard. Um, we had these two guys and they had read every book under the sun, but had come up with their own very simplified version of um, the template. And that template was very, very, very easy to explain. Basically they were like, all movies are eight short films and uh, you know, they're, they're eight, 12 and a half minute short films. So stop thinking about writing your screenplay as a screenplay. Think about writing eight short films and the 12 and a half minutes came from Hitchcock with his reels would always be exactly 12 and a half minutes. Cause apparently oh. that, it would end so he would always have like that cliffhanger at the end of 12 and a half minutes and so it's like these final hours we decided it doesn't work for every story but for our story which was very singular and was a hero's journey you know it was about one dude doing this doing that and each of those short films all eight of those short films should have an active question and question number one in short short film number one will james you know dot 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 will james go to the party and it's got to be a yes or no question mm-hmm. and then this you know will james leave um rose um will james offload rose somewhere and that short film is about this guy trying to offload this girl like the active question is what are we actively watching what are we actively watching and um we really broke the movie up into eight short films with eight active questions and lo and behold it actually makes a very compelling straightforward hero's journey yeah um, and you know the classic thing of like you know, at the end of the fourth short and the beginning of the fifth short, that's where the character gets closest to his one, but furthest from his need. And for James, it was he gets closest to the party. He's actually at the party to end all parties, ready to get fucked up and numb the pain of the end of the world. 
But what he needs to do is find Rose again and take her back to her dad because he knows that's actually the more noble, worthwhile thing to do with his yeah. last few hours. So it was all very simple. Not all movies can be just distilled like that, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the thing that these guys were sort of pitching during this this intensive workshop at Screen Australia with our script got that script from a vomit draft where things were kind of like hickety-pickety, just me sort of doing the fugue state thing, right. to, to a very tight script, um, which can be broken down into eight short films if you really look at it. And... Um, you know, I haven't really done anything that way again because the ideas I've had have never been so specifically that streamlined with um, the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, like 1922 wasn't, uh, Rattlesnake to a degree was, but not really. Um, and there's other things that have fallen by the wayside. But it's a, it's a helpful tool to have, like just thinking about um, uh, story that way. Yeah. Um, and that's the most simple formula I've ever heard of. And it actually works for a lot of films. They use The Others and Little Miss Sunshine as examples of how there are eight short stories there, mm-hmm. eight short films. The Others in particular, and all eight is, um, you know, will Nicole Kidman do this? Right. Will Nicole Kidman do that? And Every you look at the movie like, and you're like, okay, you know, it's pretty <laughs> much like will Nicole Kidman um, do this thing now? And the whole little short story is about that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, in terms of books, I can't really um, think of one that um, changed my life. Yeah. Well, that's a fascinating way to look at structuring your screenplay, and it makes all the sense in the world. Eight short films, all in one. You leave a question at the end of each one, and, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely yeah. going to digest that one. Zach, real pleasure talking to you. Any parting wisdom or advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there before we wrap up? Just got to stick with it. Gotta roll the punches. Sounds good. Thanks again, man. Real pleasure. <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. As always, here are some key takeaways from this conversation with Zach Hilditch. Number one, make your feature eight shorts in rapid succession. Hopefully by now you've read Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, Story by Robert McKee, and maybe even The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. They all feature multiple formulas for story, but one of the simplest, arguably most elegant ways to approach a feature is to make eight 12-minute shorts. For a movie to have compelling beats, every 12 minutes should feature a mini-story with a beginning, a middle, and an end to keep things consistently interesting. Hitchcock was known for doing this. And for another example, pay close attention to the others. Yes, this is all formulaic. And yes, it's important to be original. But it's an interesting concept to observe because sometimes you need to know the rules to break them. Number two, prepare for your water bottle tour. First of all, for the uninitiated, a water bottle tour is when typically your agent or manager sets you up with back-to-back-to-back meetings with producers and studios so you can pitch them on yourself and your projects all at once. Each office along the way usually gives you a bottle of water while you wait, hence the name Water Bottle Tour. If you get the chance to do a water bottle tour, make sure to have a full stable of ideas and concepts to pitch everyone you meet. Sometimes these meetings are in the context of a specific project, but this is not the way to approach water bottle tours. Yes, arrive prepared to pitch that project, but know that they may pass on it, in which case you need backup concepts in your arsenal to tell them about. 
Having multiple projects enables you to pitch your sensibility as a director, because there's always a chance that they like you and your taste, but that one project isn't right for them. Having multiple projects makes you way more likely to get a deal since not only do they have more options to choose from as producers, but you get to showcase your sensibility in a much deeper way. So that if a project comes across their desk that you're right for, they're more likely to think about you because you've left a deeper impression. On Water Bottle Tours, producers meet so many people that they cannot remember most of them. So you really need to leave a strong impression of yourself, your work, what you're capable of, and the kind of stuff that you want to do. Number three, keep multiple irons in the fire. This point is a very natural extension to the previous one and further speaks to the importance of developing multiple projects at once. This is a little bit of a paradox to the importance of focus, but the name of the game is being versatile and multifaceted and having multiple things you're pitching at all times because you never know which one will hit or win. Zach spent years pitching one of his projects with very little to no interest. Meanwhile, his concept for Rattlesnake was instantly greenlit by Netflix. Hollywood is a fickle beast, without rhyme or reason or logic. Sometimes it can drive you insane if you're not prepared for it. The film industry is a current, and rather than fight it, you need to learn how to surf it. So get those screenplays ready, and I'll see your ass in Hollywood. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor, and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey guys, one last thing before you head out. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out my 10 by 10 horror watch list. How would you like a list of the 10 favorite horror movies of 10 of your favorite horror directors? Well, I just hooked your ass up. The 10 by 10 horror watch list features a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors, including Ari Aster, James Gunn, Quentin Tarantino, Jordan Peele, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more, all in an easy to reference PDF. You can download this guide for free as my gift to my dear listeners at nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Check it out and let me know what you think.